0: The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Good morning again. Try it again. Good morning again. Yeah, yeah. Hey, well played. Appreciate y'all. Hey, uh, again. I'm Chris. Uh, I'm one of the staff pastors. Good to have you. Uh, we're we're right in the middle of uh, our, our well in the middle. I I jest. We're three weeks into our study uh, in 1 Corinthians. This will bring us through most of this year, so we're not even close to the middle of this thing yet, but um, I would love for everybody to grab a Bible. So if you brought a Bible, I hope you did. Open it to 1 Corinthians. There are hardback black Bibles under every single chair. You can open a phone or a tablet to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We are not verses on screens kind of people here because I want you to see it. I want you to open it. I want you to feel it. So swipe it or Google search it or open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That's on page 952 in those black Bibles that are underneath you, 952. Uh, But 1 Corinthians is where we're going to be. As we're turning there, uh, in first century uh, culture, Greek Roman culture, there was a movement in this culture called sophistry. If you uh, took uh, world history, you might remember this from high school or college or something. But sophistry, uh, it's based on a Greek word called, uh, the Greek word is Sophia. Sophia is a Greek word uh, which is translated wisdom in our Bibles. So when you see the word wisdom in the New Testament, that's normally Sophia. That's the Greek word there. And, and from Sophia, we get the English word sophisticated. This idea that, that, that there are these learned cultured peoples. They are sophists. Sophia, it's wisdom. And this idea of sophistry, this movement in Greco-Roman culture, is this mishmash of philosophy So like the philosophers of the Greek and Roman era mixed with eloquence and Greek rhetoric or Greek speaking. Um, And and so that was this sophistry. It was this idea of it's like taking philosophical ideas and then mixing it with the art of speaking well. And there were these teachers in this movement called sophists. Uh, and, and these teachers, a sophist, would travel all over the empire, the Roman Empire at this time, speaking at various cities. And here's what had happened. A, a sophist would show up to a city, go to the amphitheater in the city center, and the whole town would come out. Like the whole town would come out to hear the sophist speak on on a myriad of things, anything from philosophy to ethics, to politics, uh, to the gods of that time. Uh, And this was actually sophistry. The sophists were one of the primary forms of entertainment in their culture. So you, you have like the gladiatorial games and the Olympic stuff. And then you've got sophists, guys who would just get up and they would They would speak and everybody would listen. Uh, And it was, I mean, this made the sophists incredibly famous people in the ancient world. Uh, I think maybe the closest thing we have to compare that to today uh, is, is TED Talks. Right? Like, I mean, you've seen these things online, TED Talks, okay? Uh, TED Talks, th- 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 these these uh, YouTube kind of phenomenons address a wide range of topics, okay? Speakers are given a maximum of 18 minutes to present their ideas in the most innovative and engaging ways they can think of. And by 2012, okay, uh, TED Talks had reached uh, 1 billion views online. So that's that's pretty good. Uh Sophistry is alive and well today. Uh, it's just in the form of YouTube videos, okay? But um, but sophistry was known for being in, in this culture more about style than substance. It really was. It was. It was more about eloquence. Than, than content, they were really passionate about entertaining people and more focused on that than necessarily the truth of what they were dialoguing about. And very regularly, a citizen would have a favorite sophist. You'd have like your like I don't know if you had a T-shirt or what they they'd like have a picture of your favorite sophist who they were. Um, they were known as disciples of those sophists. Okay, so a disciple of a certain sophist would say things uh, culturally like, "I follow Lucian." okay or or i follow plutarch like he's my favorite sophist i'm i'm not voting for him to get caught, cast off the island like he's my my dude okay and what that that's what we think was beginning to sneak into the church in Corinth. That's what we think uh, as we begin this, this letter from Paul to the church at Corinth, uh, that, that, that sophistry has begun to sneak its way into their church. Like they were behaving more like disciples of the sophists than uh, the disciples of Jesus Christ that they were supposed to be. So, so when Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says things like, uh, I, you know, Some of you are saying, I follow Paul. Or, no, I follow Apollos. No, I follow Cephas or Peter. Um, many, many scholars think that that's actually an influence from sophistry entering into uh, the church. And last week, uh, Eric uh, Shelley, he, he ended on verse 17. So you can see this in your text before we get to verse 18 in our text. In verse 17, it says this. For Christ did not send me to baptize. But to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, there's Sophia, eloquent Sophia, El- eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul says, Hey, I didn't come to baptize. There was a little bit of a, a thing going on. He's like, I didn't come to baptize. I came to preach and not with this eloquent wisdom, like the Greeks are preaching or are sophistry, the sophistry. But I came, I came with, with humility to bring the message of the cross. Uh, and, and Paul is not blasting good speaking here. Just need to be careful when you read that. Like I didn't come to you with eloquence. It's not like he was a, a bumbling fool. All right. He didn't come with like terrible preaching. Uh, He's not saying that the only way to preach Christ faithfully is to be really boring or or lackluster or average. That's not what he's saying. Actually, most commentators believe that Apollos, this other worker in this church, was a very dynamic speaker. They think this guy like could could preach the paint off the walls. In fact, they think he was way more entertaining in his preaching and effective than Paul was. And Paul at this point is not like, hey, Apollo should really dial that back. It's making me look bad, right? Everybody thinks he's so good at preaching, like, well, no one wants to listen to me anymore. Like that's not that's not what Paul's doing here. Not at all. What what Paul is taking on is this culture that's pervasive in Greco-Roman world that has somehow begun to infiltrate the church. And the, the culture is this, a great desire to be entertained, but a lack of desire for truth. And this is why he says, hey, I didn't come to preach that way. I didn't come to bring that kind of Sophia, but rather... The cross and its power. Now, in our text today, Paul's going to continue this thought, okay? These are, the, each, each, each week, we, these build on each other, okay? These aren't texts that we can really just take in isolation, but they build on each other. And and this is his assault on this movement of the sophistry. What he's going to do is he's going to take this theme of wisdom, or Sophia, and he's going to run with it. And he begins to compare and contrast the wisdom of the sophists with the wisdom of God, and he exposes one as false. He exposes one as, in fact, foolish, weak, and not wise at all. So here we're going to do, we're going to jump into this. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. He says this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Now stop mid-verse there. Paul starts his argument by admitting that the word of the cross, okay, the message of the gospel, Christianity, is folly. That's what he says. Us, uh, maybe if you're reading in the NIV, it's translated foolishness. He says the cross is actually foolishness to those who aren't being saved which I, I love his, him starting there. I love his argument starting there. I love how unbelievably honest the scriptures are to point out that, that, that yeah, some of this stuff is really hard to believe. Like, I'm thankful that they just say that outright, that some of this stuff seems kind of crazy. Especially to, to non-Christians, right? Like Paul admits this whole Jesus dying on a cross to save sinners is foolish. Sounds kind of nuts. And, and, and just in case you're worried, this isn't Paul like with some feigned humility, He's not like playing, uh, he's not trying to win people over with some sympathy points here by saying, oh, it's foolish. No, he like he's, remember the city he's walking into, Corinth, okay? Remember the culture he's walking into. Corinth was progressive. Corinth was wealthy. Corinth was a hub. It was on the map. It was up and coming. This wasn't some backwoods, one horse town where they might like respect a sort of spin on like simple mid-American bumpkin life. That's not what this is. He's walking into Denver. He's walking into Portland. He's walking into LA with this message. This was up and coming Corinth. And what does Paul start with? He starts with the cross. He starts with this proclamation that a crucified Jewish man from some remote part of the empire is the divine sent to earth. He starts with God's very son as a Jewish peasant coming to earth. He is the Lord of all and he will return to judge all things. Like that's craziness for him to start in this context like this. And notice he doesn't say the word of the resurrection is folly, he says the word of the cross. He talks about the cross. That's not to downplay the resurrection as less important by any stretch. In fact, he's going to talk a lot about the resurrection later in this book. But, but instead of focusing on the victorious resurrection that maybe the, Corinth, the Corinthian people in church would, would have loved, this idea of the victory of God, he doesn't focus there. He focuses on the cross, the humiliation, the shame, the weakness, the, the death of Jesus. And the cross in this culture isn't jewelry. You following me? It's not like something you wear on a necklace or hang on the wall of your house to decorate. The cross was a particularly cruel and shameful death in this, in this time. It's a, as a rule, crucifixion was reserved for hardened criminals, irredeemable slaves, and rebels to the Roman state. In fact, uh, it was actually illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. Roman citizens could not be crucified. It was illegal. This was saved. This form of torture and murder was saved for the worst of the worst. This message would have been, without qualification, folly. It would have been foolish to any sensible citizen in Corinth. I mean, think about it. It makes sense to us even today. The cross represents painful death and profound humiliation, which calls into question conventional wisdom. It does. Okay. Uh, the, the the divine, the gods, they're supposed to be powerful. They're supposed to be strong. They're supposed to be mighty. And what Paul starts with in his proclamation is that the most powerful God in all the universe appears to be the most powerless. This would have been ridiculous. I love that he starts there. He doesn't end there. He goes on. So verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Uh, Now again, this is brilliant. This is good. Like Paul's not, Paul isn't like, uh, when he just said that he came with eloquent, didn't come with eloquence, this is pretty eloquent. Like the things that he says are pretty brilliant actually. Uh, for, for Paul, first, he doesn't say that uh, he doesn't say to, to, to us who are saved. He doesn't say, hey, this is is power to us who are saved. He doesn't say that. He says to us who are being saved, okay? And remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about the idea of progressive sanctification, progressively growing into Christians, right? This is a callback to that idea. If if you are in Christ in this room, here's the question. Are you saved or are you being saved? Yes, yes. Yes, the answer is yes, you are both. Again, you are fully justified in Christ, sanctified progressively, and one day you will be glorified, made perfect in him. This is the salvation process. We are being saved. It's a process. Don't you guys love the fact that we have those hand dryers? Just just thank the Lord for those today. Couldn't put some hand towels in there. I don't know. Okay, just got distracted. Sorry about that. He says to us who are being saved progressively, slowly, over the entire course of our lives, this foolish, counterintuitive, offensive message is actually power. It's power. And then he caps it all off in verse 19 by quoting from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. He says this, For it is is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the uh, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So he's essentially putting like an exclamation point on his argument by saying that God will actually destroy the wisdom All this worldly wisdom that's in competition with the foolishness, the folly of the cross. All human wisdom that fails to take God into account is not, in fact, wisdom. It's not Sophia. It's something else. So maybe you have a story like mine. Uh, My story is a little different than some, but probably similar to a lot of y'all's. But before Jesus saved me, I really thought Christianity was nuts. Like, I thought it was It was baffling to me that that enlightened human beings believed some of the things that we believe. So in high school, I thought of myself to be something of an intellectual as much as you can. In high school, all right, but like I, I was a pretty good student. I would read books and then talk with friends. So, like, we'd go out and we'd like smoke clove cigarettes and drink pots of chai tea, right? And like wear jackets with patches on the elbows to kind of make us feel like we're very sophisticated. And, and we would pretend to be intellectual and have philosophical debates. And like, we'd do that. And so, when I first started to hear about this Jesus thing, I was just I was baffled by how idiotic it all sounded it really did. It sounded narrow-minded. Jesus is the only way to get to God? That's narrow-minded. It sounded foolish. Miracles? You believe this stuff? The resurrection? The ascension to heaven? Like, what? Are you crazy? It's, I mean, think about it. What we believe is kind of nuts, it's just kind of nuts, okay? So uh, I've done this before. Imagine if Christianity was told in a modern story. Not 2,000 years ago, but imagine today. Uh, Christi- okay, so somebody knocks on your door. They come to your house. They knock on your door. And let's just assume you don't hunker down. Shh, get down. And pretend not to be there, right? Shh, maybe they'll go away. Maybe it's Amazon, Right? Like, that. imagine you actually go to the door like people used to do 20 years ago and not be afraid and turn off all the lights and pretend you're not home, okay? But let's just assume you go to the door, they, you open it up, and you say, Hey, how you doing? And they say, Hey, good to see you. I'm here to tell you about God. You're like, Oh, okay. You're not Jehovah's Witness, are you? No? Okay, let's do this. Tell me about God. And then they say, Great. Well, the Son of God was born in a small town, on the western slope of Colorado to a 16-year-old virgin girl. And you're like, didn't your parents ever have the talk with you? (laughs) Because that ain't how it works. Like, what'd you go to school at, right? Like... But he goes on, maybe somehow you you take that in. He goes on and says, hey, and that son, he never went to college, never traveled outside of Colorado, never wrote a book or anything like that. He was too busy working construction. You're like, what? God was a blue-collar worker swinging a hammer? Oh, yeah, 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 he was. He was a great carpenter. And he dabbled in some things. He had some hobbies. right? He did some homebrewing. Man, he just brought the best beer to the parties, turned water into this great stuff. It was unbelievable. Then he started doing miracles. He just started doing like he walked across the Chatfield Reservoir. It was impressive. really incredible. Took a Chipotle burrito, brought it to a Broncos game, fed the whole crowd. It was unbelievable. It was crazy. A friend of his died, okay? A friend of his died up in Boulder. Uh, it took him three days to get there. He had to walk there. He's Jesus. So he, he started walking to Boulder. Uh, they were worried about the body starting to stink. He was like, no, don't worry about it. It's just Boulder. It's just how it smells. Um, but then he brought the guy back to life. It was incredible, it fascinating. And uh, then he got arrested. It got really sad for a minute. He was given the death penalty, lethal injection. It was very sad. But then three days later, he came back from the, from the dead. He's God. And, and, and we follow. You want to join us? You want to join? You want to follow this guy with us? Your response in that moment would be, bro, I know weed is legal. <laughs> but you should really cut back, Right? It's folly. Really, I mean it's, it's okay. You don't expect your pastor to say that in church, but it is. It's this stuff is sounds kind of nuts to those who are perishing. And frankly, to me a little bit. But as you are being saved, that same message suddenly starts to have power. It starts to be more than a crazy story and it might actually fuel you towards something. The Greek word for power in this text is where we get the word, English word dynamite from. It's, it's power. It's explosive. It's dynamite. But Paul goes further. This isn't his only uh, bit of the argument. He goes further. Verse 20. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? So in that verse, he takes on everybody. He just takes everybody on. He says, where is the one who is wise? I think he's referring to the sophists there. Where's the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Now, in this one, he he is referencing the elite, learned Jewish scholars of the day. Not the Greek scholars. The Jewish scholars were called the scribes. So so Paul's not just limiting his argument to the Greeks. He is an equal opportunity offender at this point. He says, oh, I've, I've really ticked off some Greeks. Let me tick off my people too, the Jews. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? Remember, this is the form of entertainment of this age. So I think he's kind of saying here, where are the celebrities? Where are the famous people? Where are the powerful culture makers? Where are they? Now, I I want to stop here and say this. Paul is not anti-intellectual. Okay? Sometimes Christians have been accused of being anti-intellectual. And we don't help it in, in some cases. All right, like with bumper stickers that say, just let go and let God. Yeah, I, I mean, there's truth there, but don't put that on your car. All right. Or God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Right. It's like, OK, it's a little more complex than that. Just bumper sticker theology may not do our cause much. But, but, but those, those, those statements, while there might be some truth there, they've been used to prop up some, some sort of like Christianity that's mindless. Like robot, like we're rope. I believe in Jesus, right? Like super robotic, blind faith, where Christians are just supposed to check your brain at the door and just trust, and just have faith. Like there's no reasonable, rational argument here. So uh, I've just uh, finished a book uh, called Educated. Uh, anybody read this thing? Anybody read this? Some people read. No. Okay. Anti-intellectual. All right. First of all, this book was super interesting. Uh, it was really, really interesting. It's a, a memoir written by a girl who was raised in a fundamentalist Mormon household uh, where they didn't believe in formal education at all. They thought that was like a ploy of the government to, you know, and Satan. Uh, they, they didn't really believe in the government at all, they, they didn't believe in modern medicine. Uh, in, in this little fa- fundamentalist family, like they just kind of believed in like homeopathic salves and and uh, and like essential oils all over the place. Save me your emails. All right. Essential oil people. I didn't write this. I just read it. Um, but in, in everything in almost everything in this young girl's life growing up, they just trusted God. They would get injured. God will heal you. They're not smart enough. God will teach you. They just trusted. It was like this blind faith, and it led to some really interesting but also some severely tragic experiences in this girl's life. A fascinating book. Uh, I say this is not the apostle Paul. Paul is not anti-intellectual. He was an elite intellectual of his day. Okay, He, was, he, he says that he was a Pharisee. A Pharisee of Pharisees, in fact. And he said that he studied under a guy named Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel of this time, uh, he holds a reputation for being one of the greatest teachers in the annals of Judaism. Like, this guy was a hoss, Okay, Paul was learned, he was sophisticated, he was wise. In fact, modern law schools, some modern law schools today, such as Harvard, I read this, uh, have been known to require some of their students to do in-depth studies on his letter to the Romans because of just the masterful logic there. They're not reading it like we read it as scripture, but they're studying it because it's so well put together. Paul isn't anti-intellectual, rather... He's rejecting a a tradition here, both Jewish and Greek, that don't take into account the gospel. That don't really take seriously the wisdom of God. That's what he's attacking here. He goes on, verse 21. For since the wisdom of God, oh, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now that feels like a Paul classic twisted ninja move, right? Like, I don't know what he said there. It, it can be confusing, uh, but this is hugely important. So let me explain it, okay? Here, here, here's how I'd sum it up. You cannot come to know God through the wisdom of the world. That's what I think he's saying there. One scholar put it like this. God was wise enough not to let human wisdom be the key to knowing him. God leveled the playing field, as it were. I don't care what your IQ is. I don't care what you scored on the ACT. I don't care where your degree is from for all of our progress and intelligence for all of our enlightenment and education for all of our ingenuity and creativity human beings are unable to come to a saving knowledge of god without the wisdom of god being revealed to them so there's uh here's another illustration there's this romantic comedy movie that marcy loves okay and i put up with it because i'm a good husband okay it's called new in town anybody seen this thing okay don't Okay, just throw that out there. 28% on Rotten Tomatoes. That's why we shouldn't watch it, babe. Okay, it's not good. Uh, it's not good. New in town. Okay, uh, one of the jokes between the two, two of the main characters uh, in the movie goes like this. Okay, one of them says, hey, can I ask you a personal question? Have you found Jesus? And the other one replies, well, I didn't know he'd gone missing. Which is supposed to be funny. It's a rom-com, people. Like, what do you expect, okay? Um, see, that, the, the flaw of that engagement isn't the joke or the terrible writing, okay? The flaw is the question. The flaw is the question. Have you found Jesus? Listen, you don't find him. He reveals himself to you. It may seem like you stumbled upon him, It may feel like you just happened upon Jesus, but in fact, he's been whispering. He's been been calling. He's been wooing to you. This is why we don't think Christianity qualifies as a religion, actually. We talk about that sometimes, like the difference between religion and the gospel. We don't think Christianity is a religion because you may have heard this about religions, that religion is man's search for God. Whatever religion you think, it's like, how do we search for the divine? But in the gospel, all of that's flipped on its head. The gospel tells the story of God coming to find us. Not us on some introspective intellectual search for him. It's him coming to be with us to reveal himself to us, to rescue and redeem us. Salvation is only through the foolishness of the cross. That's his argument. And then he gets even more specific in verse 22. He says, for the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. So he, 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 Categorizes everybody into two groups, which is traditional in the Bible. The people of Paul's day were really in two categories. Jews and non-Jews, which are known as Greeks or as Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, okay? The Jews were God's chosen people, God's covenantal people. They were given God's law through Moses. And then there's everybody else, pagans, Gentiles, the Greeks, and remember, uh, remind me, okay, I know actually, but um, just play with me, okay? The church in Corinth, uh, who's it primarily made up of? Greeks, Gentiles, yes the first church in human history that's not predominantly jewish but actually predominantly greek, predominantly gentile and paul says to the greeks or to the jews they demand signs the jews they demand signs they want impressive spectacles the jews expect god to verify his religious claims with compelling proofs like he did in the old testament and this is a common theme, okay? It's a common theme from the Jews to Jesus during his life. I'll put some scriptures up on the screen here. Matthew 12, 38, Jesus uh, is uh, speaking to some Pharisees and scribes, and this is what they say to him. Some scribes and, and some Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. It doesn't happen just once, okay? Matthew 16, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came. And, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. They want signs, John six thirty, So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And then finally, Mark 8. This is one of my favorites. Mark eight eleven. 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, which is just the part that stands out to me. I don't know what that means, to sigh deeply in your spirit, but when Jesus does to you, it's not good. Sigh deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. First of all, have you read the Gospels? You read? Some of you? Okay. Um, Did Jesus perform signs? And miracles, and wonders, and displays of his power and greatness, yeah, all over the place. Uh, have you read the book of Acts? Does Peter and Paul and the apostles, do they do miracles and perform signs? And, and so, so first of all, the question is a bit like, show us another, Like the reality is this, no sign is ever enough. You see one sign, you're going to want to see more signs. There's ne- like Jesus, it's not for lack of signs that they didn't believe in Jesus or in the apostles' message, but the reality is there was one main sign for them, and it was the cross. There was one main moment that was supposed to be the sign. It was Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, but they despised the cross. You see, Jewish people weren't looking for a Messiah to come like Jesus came. They weren't. They weren't looking for the Son of God to come and die on a cross. They were looking for something that lined up a little bit more with their understanding of the Old Testament. They were looking for what we call a Davidic leader. Somebody in the line of David, King David. Someone who would throw off the oppression of the Romans, just as King David had thrown off the oppression of the Philistines. They wanted a a savior who would take up his kingly rule by dethroning Caesar and establishing Israel as a free and powerful people once again. The sign they were seeking was mighty and triumphalistic. One that would rescue Israel from the slavery and bondage they were in. They weren't looking for a suffering servant. They weren't looking at the cross as the place where true freedom is actually found, where the ultimate slavery of sin and death was broken. They didn't see that. The Jews demanded signs. And it's not just them, it's me. It's you. You ever said, uh, hey, if God would just do something miraculous, if I just could walk across the public pool, right? Right? take my Lunchable and feed the entire kindergarten class, right? Like, if that happened, certainly i believe. Would you? You think you wouldn't try and convince yourself that you hadn't seen what you saw? Jews demand signs. Signs will never be enough, though. He then, then says the Greeks, they seek wisdom. There's our word again. Sophia. Okay? Jews demand signs, but the Greeks seek wisdom. The Greeks want a God who makes sense to them. A God who fits their human sensibilities. A God who fits our minds and our judgments and our expectations and our categories. We like him to be able to fit into a booklet about him. We like systematic God. We like predictable God. We like rational God. And this is alive and well today as well. I mean, goodness, you ever heard somebody say, I would never believe in a God who, fill in the blank. The one I hear most often is this, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? And listen, that's a difficult question. I'm not pretending that's not difficult, okay? And there are, I I think, compelling biblical answers to that question. How how could a loving God send anyone to hell? Um, I heard another pastor say this, though. He said, The fascinating thing is that in all my years of ministry, I've never heard the reverse question How could a just God allow anyone into heaven? Like, that's not the debatable point. We believe in a just God, we believe in a loving God, we believe in love and justice grace and justice. But we question the love of God, but we never question the justice of God. He just points out that the hypocritical nature of human reasoning, this isn't on them, this is on us. This is how we process stuff. There is immense arrogance associated with human wisdom. See, when when, when we start defining what kind of God, God can be, well, God would never be that way. God would never do. When we start defining what kind of God God can be, based on our human faculties and sensibilities, God would never do this. God would only ever do this. He would always do this. The, the question becomes, who's God in that scenario? Is it God or is it us? It's arrogant. I, I mean, you, I, I know it, I see it myself all the time. That's Greek thinking. It's not new. 2000 years ago, the Greek demanded wisdom. The Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So this doesn't pack as much of a punch uh, today as it, as it did back then, but, but Paul just preached something shocking. He just preached something shocking, a crucified Christ, a crucified Messiah. Um, That was an oxymoron. We think of it, oh, Jesus was crucified. Yeah, died on the cross. Crucified Christ was an oxymoron. Two things that you try to put together that don't fit together, but they get put together, right? Freezer burn, that's an oxymoron, right? Soft rock, (laughs) tight slacks, government efficiency, adorable cat, right? Like These things (laughs) are things that just don't go together, right? A a crucified Christ. It doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. It says this is a stumbling block to the Jews. The Greek word for stumbling block is scandalon. It's where we get our word scandal. It's scandalous to the Jews that the Christ would be crucified. And that's not just because of what I said about the Jews and their misplaced ideas around this Davidic successor, okay? It's not just that. In Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 through 23, here's what we read. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... Not like hang him with a rope, but like crucify him. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. The crucified Christ is scandalous to the Jews because they believe he was cursed if he died on a cross cursed by God. For those who think that God must not be weak, the cross is an affront to God's majesty. It's insulting to link God with weakness like this. More than that, it's scandalous. And the Gentiles, the Greeks, they think it's folly. They think it's foolishness, right? The Greek word there is moria, uh, which is not from um, Okay. Just so you know, the Greek word is Moria where we get the English word moron. Just uh, so when I call people morons, ease up. Okay. Paul did it first. Just <laughs> the Gentiles think it's moronic for God to let his son die to save others. It's foolishness. These are the people of the Pantheon Remember, remember high school? We're studying this Zeus, Poseidon, Ares, Apollo, gods of strength, gods of war, gods of might. They had no framework for what Paul is proclaiming and what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, verses four through five. I'll put it up on the screen. Surely. Speaking of Jesus, the coming Christ, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The cross is scandalous. The cross is moronic it was then and I think it is today verse 24 First Corinthians back to your text but to those who are called to those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God he says to, to us who are called to those who are called who's he talking about Us, me, you, we. He is talking to those who are called. If you are here, then you are called. Okay? Some of you have responded to that call. Others of you have not responded to that call. But I believe that if you're sitting here, it's evidence that God is doing something. Or I don't think you'd be here. The message of the cross trips some people up, but in others, it is power and it is wisdom. A different kind of power from the miracles the Jews demanded and a different kind of wisdom from the kind that the Greeks were looking for. And then he finally caps this whole argument off in verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's a great verse can memorize that one it's worth your time he is essentially saying this god on his worst day which i don't think he can have one all right uh but if he could have a worse day god at his worst is wiser and stronger than we are it's brilliant rhetoric that he's actually using here if you see it okay god can't be foolish incompatible with his character god cannot be foolish god cannot be weak but we ascribe those things to him that he's a fool and that he is a weakling so god redefines those terms like we think it's foolish for him to sacrifice his son for us but it, but his foolishness is the greatest wisdom of the world like his his foolishness is wiser than wisdom We think it's weak for God to let his son be humiliated and betrayed and crucified. But it's in God's weakness where power is found. See, to God, power and wisdom are found in a crucified Christ. And I just, for a second, think about the ramifications then for us. If that's true. If power is found in the crucified Christ, if we live in a universe where God was crucified, what does that say about violence? If we live in a universe where where God was poor, what does that say about money? If we live in a universe where God was tortured, what does that say about love? If we live in a universe where God was betrayed, what does that say about relationships? And if we live in a universe where where God rose from the grave, what does that say about death? Okay, let me ask one more question, and we're done. Okay, I promise. Um, who's Paul writing to? Is, is he writing to the city of Corinth or the church of Corinth? Not a trick question. Okay. Church, yes, good. Proud of you. Proud of you, church. He's writing all of this to the church who had begun to believe that there was a better wisdom out there. That the Sophia of the sophists was starting to sound okay to them that there was more power to be had in the world. They were beginning to believe that the world had it right. And maybe, maybe this message of the cross that we started to believe, well, it started to look a little bit more and more moronic to them. Foolish, folly. And I think Paul's writing this to the church at Corinth, and I think he writes it to the church in Littleton as well. I want you to ask yourself this. Um, Maybe for some of you, You've never even considered the cross and the wisdom and the power of God displayed there. So like maybe like me, when I was growing up in high school, uh, it just seemed foolish. Like it seems folly. Maybe you've never believed in what Jesus has done for you. And it's just crazy. But, but maybe for some reason today, it doesn't seem quite as moronic. Maybe it doesn't seem quite so foolish. The cross doesn't seem so full of folly as maybe it did earlier today. Like, that's what happened to me. I get invited to go to this youth thing. I start going to this youth thing. They start talking about Jesus. I made fun of it every single day as they're driving me home from this youth thing. To the guys who are bringing me, I am mocking openly what they're talking about. And then they're like, okay, you want to come back next week? And I'm like, sure, sign me up. (laughs) And just one day, it stopped sounding quite so foolish. And listen to me, I had questions. Planet of the Apes was just re-released. I was like, what about that? (laughs) What about apes that can talk? Explain that, Jesus, right? Like I had some questions that were not answered, but suddenly the cross started to seem less foolish than it did. Maybe today you feel that way. Maybe today you think that this thing is crazy, but it just seems to be beckoning to you a little bit, to believe, to, to take a step of faith. I would propose that that is no mere coincidence, but rather, God is calling you. There's this great theological term for this, just because I like this, okay? It's geeky, but it's great. The effectual call of God. I'm riding home debating as an atheist with my Christian friends and God's like, oh, I got you, bro. The effectual call of God, God wooing, God calling, God seeking you out. And maybe for you today, the message is this, hey, don't neglect the call. Just pick up. You don't really do this anymore. I don't know, okay? (laughs) Don't neglect. Rather, lean into it. You don't have all the answers. I, you, you, you never will, okay? You just need only say, Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my life. And just see what happens, okay? All right. But for a lot of us in here, a lot of you, you're here at church because you you have already responded to that call. There was a first, think about that time for you when you went from, from thinking this is crazy to the, think, the the point where you started saying, huh? I think I believe this stuff. Like, remember that. And, and, and today, maybe like the, the Christians in Corinth, you're, you're already being saved, but as you work, like in your workplace, or, or uh, when you watch the news, or when you talk with people, or you read books, which apparently not many of you do, okay? The wisdom of the world, it can seem so appealing, To Christians, to us who believe it can seem so appealing and very quickly, I, we can start to think maybe the cross is a bit more foolish than we'd like to admit openly at church. It can seem folly. The call to us is to trust the gospel once again. That's what Paul's writing to do. That's what he's saying, that that not in power, does God move? It's not in power that he moves, but through weakness. It's not in wisdom as the world sees it that we find true wisdom, but rather in God's weakness and God's foolishness. He is wiser, he is stronger than even the best that the world has to offer. Remember the cross, church. Remember the crucified Christ. A stumbling block to the Jews. And to many of us. Foolishness to the Greeks. And to many of us. But to those who are being saved, it's the explosive, dynamic power of God. Let's pray together. Well, Father, what a, what a passage. Uh, what, a, what a word from your holy scripture. What, what what eloquence, what wisdom, what an argument, and what foolishness that we ascribe to. Thank you for your servant Paul as he wrote this nearly two millennia ago and for its, for I think its divine relevance for us today. And so God, I pray for those two categories of folks that I just mentioned, Lord. I pray for those who are teetering on the edge of belief. They just... They just don't get it, but they they want to. God, would you, through your spirit, pull them into the kingdom. Find them. He's standing at the door knocking. wants you to come in with him. I pray, Lord, that there are men and women and students in this room who today say, Jesus, I give you my life. And it's foolish, but I just got to. And... And then, Father, for for many of us in this room who have already responded to that call, but we are in the process of being saved. We are not final products, but we are progressively growing to be more like Jesus. And maybe we have just slipped into thinking, nah, the world's got some good points. The world's got some wisdom and some answers, and maybe what I believe in is a bit crazy. Or would you just firm up again that the power of God is found in suffering? that the strength of God is found in weakness, that the wisdom of God is the foolishness of him sending his son to die on a cross for our sins. Lord, I pray for myself for my brothers and sisters, that the cross would be our message, that like Paul, we would be convinced of it and that it would transform us from death to life, from one degree of glory to the next until we are all presented to you, perfect, blameless in your sight. Lord, we love you. We bless you for this text. Use it now to encourage and disciple us. We pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.